Hi, my name is Denise Duran. I'm a behavior assistant and a master in social work candidate for 2021. If you need some gems and the latest updates on pop culture and millennial everything, check out the Millennial Her podcast. Make sure to subscribe and listen in because I love them girls. You are now tuned in to Millennial Her. Hey, what's up, y'all? Welcome to another episode of the Millennial Herd Podcast, joined by myself and my co-host, Shirls, who is not in studio today, but she is still here with us, so don't worry. She's book busy and blessed. Hey, Shirls! Hey, Ari! Hey, team! I miss y'all! <laughs> but we are here for another episode. Episode is called Baked or behind bars. Um, if you can't figure that out by the title, we are talking all things cannabis. We are talking about marijuana substance use that may turn into substance abuse and how to overcome that, what to look for in signs of your loved ones. And we thought it was a great episode to talk about, especially during the pandemic, um, stressors, things like that, that may get you more inclined to using these legal and illegal substances. So we're going to just get right into it. So let's get into our hot topics. So, Shirls, we're going to get right into our hot, hot, hot topics. We want to know where, how are people coping with this pandemic obviously i'm automatically thinking because we're having an episode about cannabis about substance use we can assume that might may mean some you know uh legal drug use illegal drug use so i want to know though how do you think your peers are handling it or what are they using to handle i think personally that um the cells on alcohol has increased a, a number like their number has increased a lot because people are alone and people are buying more alcohol buying more wine maybe when they used to buy like one bottle which will last them a while <laughs> now they have to double up and buy two or three and also cannabis has been a thing because I know like a lot of people that own cannabis business have been selling more edibles have been selling maybe if you were buying a dime bag you're buying like uh, eighth or more compared to before so I don't know what, what about you what have you been seeing um kind of like what I have been doing myself which is uh maybe some CBD oil um melatonin uh, obviously some wine if it gets really stressful for me um I haven't seen any or heard any of my peers using something that I would consider some harsh uh never to touch uh substances which are like heroin meth amphetamine you know things like that but I mean it, I, I definitely see it and that's really big part to the pandemic and then it even brings me to the point of thinking in, in some you know socially in a social aspect what would you know if you are 
smoking or you're engaging with your friends socially still socially socially distancing how would that puff puff pass rotation happen in pandemic style like is it no more like what what's going on you tell me (laughs) i personally believe that first of all people might say is byob bring your own blunt but they're bringing their own blunt and they're all smoking the same blunt People aren't (laughs) rolling up separately. And I think that one thing about the pandemic, it has taught us how society, how we move is just strictly disgusting. Like we pass Mm -hmm. germs on a regular, even when it comes to the rolling method, um, when you're rolling the blunt and you're licking that part and you're burning it Mm -hmm. and you're passing it to someone else. Regardless, I personally don't believe that smoking marijuana is a form of social distancing unless you're really on it and you're like, okay, I'm going to roll my L and you're going to roll your L. And then we're going to, we're going to face our own L's, but we're, we're going to keep the social aspect of us having conversations of <laughs> right. us doing that. But nine times out of 10, that's not happening. It's just like, Oh, Ari bought a blunt. Shirley bought a blunt. So like, it's we're like still a, sharing that one blunt. Right. So it's like almost if it happens, it happens. If it don't, it don't. So, but that re- that is also something that brings to the aspect of like, okay, how safe are we being? But that's a conversation for another day, but it's definitely just something where it's like, okay, clearly we figure it's not that deep in certain aspects because we're still doing regular scheduled programming when it benefits us. But that, um, that brings me to another point of shouting out. This is Jersey. Where our governor, Phil Murphy, Cheryl, share the news. What has happened with Phil Murphy? I feel like everybody knows by now, but go ahead. Tell us. I'm telling you, Phil has been doing his thing. He ran on with his campaign with him running for New Jersey governor. He said that he will legalize marijuana. And although his term is almost up, he's he's kept his promise. He legalized marijuana. He said that the reason why he was legalizing it was for social justice, for racial justice, for economic justice. And although he just announced on Monday, um, he signed the legislation on Monday, you know, of course, people in his comments is like, but what about my expungement? And it's like, it's going <laughs> to yeah. come. We, we like Hopefully. we talked about in our politics um, episode, mm-hmm. our government government officials are not our saviors. You know, like it takes time. So just because he signed it, even when it comes to dispensaries, like just because he signed it doesn't mean a dispensary is going to come open tomorrow. It's going to take some time, but we have to accept where we are now. And he's legalized marijuana and he's working towards criminal justice reform. That's a huge thing. It's definitely some fine print in there that does need to be uh, figured out. Uh, Even, for example, uh, with the whole you can't you still can't buy it, but you can use it. Um, So it leaves it. I I was looking in the comments of, you know, NewJersey.com when it was shared on uh, the governor's social media where it's like, okay, what does that mean? It's just going to magically pop up in my car. Like, what does that mean for, you know, if I get caught with it, et cetera. And I don't think they have that figured out yet as far as like, okay, should you keep your a receipt of, you, you know, when you buy what you buy? Or if it's something as simple as that, if you have it, it's kind of like, okay, as long as you, as long as you didn't use it or, or no, you can use it, but it's, it's more so, 
if if I guess if they're not catching you in the moment, like purchasing it from your plug or you know anything like that then it's it's you should be clean from there on out so i definitely think it's a step in the right direction i think we needed it and um you know everybody else is doing it so definitely think it's um something that we should applaud and also with that conversation of things that aren't still socially accepted uh which is uh, the use of those harsher drugs I mentioned earlier, uh, heroin, methamphetamines. I came across uh, a person and an article on the New York Post where it was talking about some Columbia professor named Carl Hart, and he's talking about how his heroin use, he's come out talking about his heroin use being a great uh, avenue for him to really get down a great work-life balance and so he goes on to saying I mean he's esteemed guys he, he is a professor of psychology and neuroscience he is on the chair he's a chair of the psych department um he's in his 50s he's a father of three he's married he's and he's coming out with a book actually called Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fire where he's even talking about just the use of heroin now he his perfect day is going, sitting by the fireplace at the end of a hard work day and doing a few lines of meth. I mean, not meth, heroin. So with that, it's like he he he's doing all of this under the guise that, okay, let's decriminalize these substances because it doesn't mean we are, we can't function. It doesn't mean we can't still get things done. I don't think I I don't agree with that in my life as far as especially as if you're a professor and you're, you know, teaching kids and you're teaching them while you're high um, just off that. I'm not I can't get with that. But I think the conversation about, OK, we're not it doesn't make us it doesn't turn us into people that can't do for ourselves I think that definitely leads to a conversation and it definitely does add to that conversation of decriminalizing decriminalizing the people that have been put behind bars for these same exact crimes they've been found guilty of I can say personally for Oregon um I know recently it passed that Oregon decriminalized all drugs not just marijuana but all drugs so that's like a thing where I know more progressive politicians are trying to pass and they just want to change the narrative of being a substance abuser as a negative thing to more of a positive thing to them like you know actually extending to get help for their substance abuse so Mm. I like I agree with you I think that's a little bit uh, (laughs) it's a little bit extra but it just it just has me thinking about marijuana and how marijuana has always been you know, the narrative behind it is always like, it's a gateway drug to harder drugs. I personally want to ask you, what are your thoughts on it? Do you believe that marijuana is a gateway drug? Um, do I believe marijuana is a gateway drug? Meaning if I think it'll make me more inclined to to trying other drugs, I do not think that that is the case. Um, I think you try what you I think you try what you think is popular and what you see in the media is socially acceptable or what you think is something that your friends are doing. I think I don't think it has anything to do with the next person. You could say that about anything. 
Um, definitely it was a, a push in the media for a while, definitely in the 80s and 90s, but I don't, I don't think it's a gateway drug. I think it's actually now the drug that, like, as you can see, because most of the country has accepted it uh, for recreational use that they see like, okay, now maybe we should encourage people to use marijuana so that they don't use everything else that's out there that's actually killing people. You know, I mean, I haven't heard one person say, I've been researching this since we said we were going to talk about this. And, you know, the real consensus is that marijuana doesn't kill people. So if I agree, so I if agree you're saying that. that marijuana, if I'm saying and you're saying that marijuana doesn't kill people, you can definitely find numbers on heroin, meth, opioid, of those different substances, alcohol, killing people. So I think it's, it's actually flipped. We want, if anything, we are like, yes, use marijuana so that you don't use anything else. I think I I, I want to personally we, later on on the episode we have a special guest and I want to personally weigh in on that, but I do believe that um, marijuana can be a gateway drug to someone who has a generational you know um, maybe their father was a, a strong drug addict and you know the son is basically just smoking marijuana or like we like we talked about off offline Mm -hmm. we talked about trauma like trauma is real especially during this pandemic where we have to live with this new norm yeah so to me and you we may be okay with the marijuana high but compared to someone who has a family history of drug abuse they may feel like the marijuana high isn't enough and they want more so i can see in that aspect how it can be a gateway drug okay I like your um, perspective on things, but let's give people the facts. Okay, listeners and watchers out there, um, so far, uh, uh, marijuana has been legalized in multiple states, um, medicinally in more than 35, not including New Jersey because that recently just happened, 15 states plus the District of Columbia is legal to buy and consume recreational marijuana and that is waves of change since like we talked about in the past where it was hard to come by um still ways to go like I said that fine print is something we are still trying to mark but definitely um changes have been made when I when I think of that though it's kind of what we mean by the fine print what are the loopholes of it? And I have found just what um, what you could have faced with a simple possession charge. So, for example, a lot of states exclude federal charges, but for simple possession charges, it could cost you a year in prison and or $1,000 in fines, even as a first offender. And any subsequent incident incidents might double in the sentence and tack on more time so and that's coming from the u.s sentencing commission so what would you say is something that you think people should keep in mind as this new bill just specifically in new jersey but obviously all over the country what should people still keep in mind if they choose to um engage i think people should keep in mind like just like alcohol for example, like you have to be 21 to drink alcohol and, and mostly anywhere. You can't be pregnant and be drinking. That should be the same with marijuana. For example, just like you shouldn't drink and drive, you shouldn't smoke and drive. And I feel like even when it comes to, um, because Phil Murphy, he hasn't put out a statement about 
what, what's it going to be mean for like if you're if you apply for a job in Jersey and you have to take a drug test, will they be testing marijuana or not? Because most jobs test alcohol, you know, yeah. even though we don't know that. Yeah. So I feel like there needs to be a fine line between that. And I think that it's up to the person to be responsible for themselves. Like, you know, like just be smart about it. Like now that marijuana is legal, you know, just still be smart. Don't smoke and drive. Don't be pregnant and you're smoking weed. Got you. you know, do it. Be, take accountability. Still be responsible. Be responsible when doing it, you know? Now, let's switch gears a little bit. Tell me about kind of like what you mentioned about the gateway drug. It, I mean, or it being considered gateway drug. Um, talk about the taboo that marijuana had, the stigma that marijuana had in the past and how it has evolved in the, fu- in, in the present time. I can speak for me personally on my personal experiences, um, especially in the 90s. You know, I'm a 90s baby. Marijuana was seen, it had a negative stigma. It was such a taboo, meaning like, um, I mean, I'm a product of the crack epidemic. Um, Later on, we'll talk more about it. But like marijuana was labeled as a drug and like on the same level as crack. Anyone who smoked marijuana, it was just like, it was no like, oh, this is a holistic approach to anxiety. It was just like, it's a drug, it's wrong. We have to, you know, lock up these drug dealers that are selling marijuana. It's horrible. But compared to now where CBD, especially in Jersey, you go to Walgreens and you see CBD, but CBD has a portion of marijuana in it from the hemp plant. Mm. but marijuana has become more acceptable I think um during the hippie era you know the hippie era painted marijuana as a peaceful thing as a great thing compared to when it came to black communities it was a negative thing it was like oh this chronic is tearing our neighborhoods apart and the war on drugs and everything so that's my personal opinion on it it's my personal opinion on it okay so I don't want our listeners and our watchers to think that, you know, we're saying these things are necessarily bad. I mean, it's been proven, like we said earlier, that marijuana hasn't, I mean, in my opinion, hasn't killed people. So it it, it can it can have its benefits. It has health benefits for sure, medicinally. I mean, uh, sure, as you can add to this uh, list that we have research which is definitely adds to pms pain relief um obviously still pressing that zero fatality rate it it aids to anxiety um cancerous uh fights so tumors alzheimer's adhd tourette's things like that cheryl's um can you add to that list yes and even glaucoma or like like you said i think one thing with trauma, the pandemic has increased anxiety. And I just want to personally switch gears to the different strands of marijuana. Um, as you know, there's sativa and indica. Indica is more for like, you know, relaxation, um, sleep aid compared to sativa strands, which are more heightened and jumpstarting for creativity and focus. Definitely. Um, I think that um, is great education for our listeners and watchers who are really versed in that uh, in that category. But definitely for those same listeners and watchers, when we're talking about what you engage in, we're still talking about 
how you can get ahead of the curve. So even for something, because it's now legal to use recreationally in the state of New Jersey and in more than half the country, we wanted to give you a little a little gem on uh, um, how you can make it a lucrative investment opportunity or how you can become a licensed dispensary merchant like Jay-Z, like Whoopi Goldberg, like... Uh, Snoop Dogg. Snoop Dogg. There's a couple people. Even um, Biggie's son, you know, the Notorious B.I.G., he's invested into Cookies Dispensary, which is like a big strand of of what a lot of people are smoking. Right. So I have some tea. So it's saying that obviously a dispensary is not hard to is not easy to build. It's a hard task, but and it's costly up front. But it's saying that the average dispensary can total up to $775,000 in startup money. It's heavily regulated, which we already knew. Um, business owners have to have permits and licenses um, in order as a prerequisite to um, owning. And uh, if you failure to operate without the same permits and licenses can have steep fines and closures obviously you don't want to do that but definitely if you are thinking of owning a dispensary wanting to invest with your friend definitely have at least a mill in the bank or in capital so that you can um engage in this opportunity and and but just so you know how great it is the average uh, CBD sales is $535 million annually, and by 2022, it will have grown to $1.8 billion, which will be a 53% increase for annual growth in hemp-derived CBD products as well. And that's coming from CBD hemp experts. So definitely it's worth some conversation with your boss friends, your fellow like boss friends um, to explore. So if you do do it, make sure that you share that the Millennial Herb podcast gave you those deets so that you knew how to level up. This week's Black-Owned Business of the Week is Bad Girl Creations. Bad Girl Creations specializes in creating customized marijuana paraphernalia. Their bundle box includes a grinder, rolling papers, rolling tray, and more. So make sure you support and let them know that the Millennial Podcast sent you. Let's get into something that's fun, I feel, in the spirit of cannabis, marijuana. We want to... uh figure out a game let's talk about some memories let's go down memory lane a little bit Cheryl's so um Binsky can you hit that little music thank you okay Cheryl start the game tell us what the game is okay okay so we have several games so what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about our edible experiences (laughs) and the most memorable edible experience here your funniest edible story you go Ari. first. <laughs> you go, go ahead, first. Ari. Share your funniest uh, edible story. Uh, okay, my funniest edible story. It was like sophomore year because I remember being in um, my college dorms and I had took a brownie. I had got it from my friends in acting class. Well, they weren't my friends, but acquaintances. It was kind of surprising because it was somebody white who was selling them. So I was like, okay, if she white, I'm gonna definitely get messed up. I don't know why I thought that, but that's what I thought. So anyways, I bought a brownie. I took the brownie 
I split it in half with my roommate, and I think I got the wrong half because I think more mine had more, more of the weed in it because my friend wasn't high, but I was. I was on our college buses, like eyes red, everything, and I was high until the next day. We had a whole event to go to, and I was still stoned, but it was amazing, and I realized, like, I realized that it's, it's really real. Like, it will hit you, and... <laughs> Ever since then, I stay away from brownies. That's my story. What's your story, Cheryl? <laughs> That's a great story. I think for my, I have multiple funny edible stories, but I will remember this one because I'm such a big Nipsey Hussle fan. And this was the last, I, I went to go see him in concert because he was performing at Broccoli Fest in Washington, DC. And one of my friends who was the guest on our adulting episode, Kiwan, kept talking about this vegan edible brownie. <laughs> so we go to this festival and we had um, a lemonade that was infused. And we also had an uh, a vegan edible brownie. So like this festival had her, Daniel Caesar. It was just so many art, Nipsey Hussle, Cardi B, so many people. So we're enjoying the concert and it just hit all of us at the same time. And we all just got quiet and we all just looked at each other and started like dying <laughs> and then for some reason we kept ending up in the line of like the food trucks and we're just like why are we, we in this line <laughs> and that will forever be my favorite edible story because it took us it took us so long for the edible to hit us and when it did hit us it hit us all at the same time and we were just we just Dumb. enjoyed the vibes. We were at a festival and it was great vibes. So that's why that's my favorite edible story. Okay, well, we gave y'all a little bit of story time before we switch gears back to the serious notes of that it can be fun. It'll have its highs and its lows, but when it's low, it gets really low. And that leads from substance use to substance abuse. And so like Cheryl said, we have a very amazing guest. Her name is Denise Duran. She will be up shortly to talk about what that really entails and what that life is like. But we just wanted to make sure that we told y'all that we're talking about substance abuse, because substance use and substance abuse because it is prevalent, especially in the pandemic. You will feel pressured. You will feel stressed. And when depending on where you turn, it can lead you down a bad path. And with the millennials, we are very much affected. We are trying to be business owners. We are being entrepreneurs, things like that. And that, and that uh, really takes a toll on us. And there are some substances, like we said, that I admitted to that get a bad rep, which is meth, shows can add in, uh, opioids. Opioids, crack, um, any, you know, prescription um, mental health drugs like Adderall, you know, if there's abuse on that. It is obviously a great investment opportunity for our listeners and our watchers out there if you so decide to become in this world that is going to be that is basically being normalized. But also, let's take it back. Let's think about why it's even become trendy in the media. Shirls, tell us who or what you think has made marijuana so acceptable. I think what made it really trendy as I said before, I'm a 90s child. So when Dr. Dre dropped the Chronic album, marijuana became a thing. Also Snoop Dogg and kind of shifting more gears to like later 2000s. Wiz Khalifa, when he dropped his big state, 
cushion orange juice. And that just made everyone, you know, I think it's just California. We can just think California artists like Tupac. Like the anyone, first time like we Ice think Cube, in California, it made it trendy. That's the first time we think in California for anything. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but I could I could definitely agree uh, and see why you would say that because a lot of hip hop I think is what you're leading at is that the hip hop uh, genre in music is what really made it acceptable. Is what was cool. That's what we were doing. You know that is how we set ourselves apart from rock who was doing coke uh you know um country who was doing hair you know meth or whatever they had their own sticks and 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 mj cannabis just happened to be probably one of ours so i can see you on that but now bisky play that game play the play the music because i wanted us to play a little game and with that is if you could have a scythe, Cheryl, I'm going to leave this to you because this is for you. I don't really do scythes often. If you could have a scythe with three celebrities dead or alive, who would you choose? I mean, you're talking to me who's like the biggest Tupac fan. So Tupac, Snoop Dogg, and okay, um, Wiz Khalifa because I'm a big, Cushion Orange Juice is probably one of my favorite mixtapes. But my honorable mention because I'm such a big fan, Janae Aiko. Okay. Those are some solid celebrities. Get you a little bit chill in the mood. Get you turned up, ready to fight. It seems like a perfect and have balance. Some great, dope conversation, intellectual conversations. Like I would love to pick Tupac's brain. Off it of seems like fight. you're Carl Hart. It's a perfect yep. work-life balance. <laughs> <laughs> So we have a special guest with us today, and she is currently getting her master's in social work, and she knows a lot about substance abuse. I'm going to let her introduce herself, friend to the show, Denise Duran. Hey, Denise. Hey, Denise. Hi, guys. I'm super excited to be here. Finally get to really talk to you guys and be on the Millionaire Her. I'm super excited. So my name is Denise Duran, and I am a podcaster as well as a MSW graduate student. So my background right now, I work as a behavior assistant with children with cognitive developmental issues. And I also interned at a substance and dual diagnosis facility. So I've been working in the dual diagnosis facilities probably a good two years now. And I have a certified drug and alcohol counseling certificate that I obtained where I study different types of drugs, different types of uses patterns. And I'm super excited to be here and talk to you guys about everything that, um, pertains to substance. Well, we are so happy that you are here. Um, just to catch you up, we've been talking about everything in regards to uh, different substances that we use, whether recreational, for medicinal purposes. And we've we really spoke on its past stigmas, its present, uh, how it's presently considered, uh, i.e. just an example of marijuana, uh, cannabis, and, you know, how it was looked at as being a terrible, terrible thing to try. Uh, and now it's, you know, obviously uh, legal in uh, more than half the country. So we just wanted to also make sure that we shed light and information on um, other substances that are still, you know, 
I wouldn't consider them to be the best substances to use. But for those, it's reality. It's some people's reality. So we definitely just wanted to shed light on that. And so we wanted to bring you here to help us do that. So we have some, you know, so we have somebody credible to validate our thoughts. So thank you so much. So let's get right into it. So with it, we wanted to know how, what do you think are the are common stressors that attract, that get people to want to maybe try illegal substances or substances in general? Because the, I, I, I don't even want to say illegal because at the end of the day, alcohol, that's legal and that's still, you know, uh, uh, something that leads to d uh, many deaths in the country. So what do you think the stressors or what do you think is... Um, the, the reason why people even attempt to try uh, these drugs? Um, there's a lot of reasons, I would say, and that's a great question. I would say one of the number one things that I see that happens a lot with substance use and in the particular populations that I work with, it's trauma, a lot of trauma. A lot of people who've dealt with a lot of painful losses or suffering or a lot of transgenerational differences. For example, you have people that have been through sexual abuse, sexual assault, um, they've been neglected, they've had instances where they don't have both parents in the home or they're raised by a relative. I think that trauma is one of the number one reasons for um, substance use in, in a way and then also mental health. Now, a lot of times when you talk about substance of, um, use and mental health, it kind of goes hand in hand. There's something called MICA, which is mental, uh, it's called mental illness, chemical abuse. So we're not sure sometimes if the mental health issue that has been not discovered, right? For many years, some people have suffered from anxiety, depression, and they don't know that triggers the use that triggers substance abuse, whether it be alcohol, like you mentioned, whether it be marijuana, cocaine, opioids, or heroin. We're not sure because some people have never been through to a therapist or been diagnosed, right? So right. then that's one. And then the trauma offsets with, is it the mental health that's triggering the, the substance use or is the substance use that becomes mental health issue? And this is something that's been an argument within our field. I mean, Cheryl's is in my MSW program and we take classes together. And that's something that's very intertwined. In the facilities that I work in, I work with a population of trauma and a lot of the things that they've they kind of take to using is that trauma. Like I mentioned, mm -hmm. the neglect, the sexual abuse, um, just even sometimes peer pressure, even the social location that people are in. So I think it's a variation of things, but I, I kind of want to hone in on trauma specific now because of the pandemic and the increase of things that I've seen clinically in, in the facility that I intern in. I talked about this. There's been like a, a good 10 to 15% increase in people using substances, whether it's mm -hmm. illegal substances or illegal because of the trauma that we're enduring right now within the pandemic. You know, I miss hanging out with you and seeing you girls and look at how I we're do. talking. So right. I chose to talk about trauma as a stressor because it kind of unravels all these things. You have financial burdens, you have issues where it's stress. And sometimes when people are very stressed out, they need a release mm -hmm. and your body kind of wants that. Your neurotransmitters in your brain say, hey, let me get some of that serotonin. Let me get some of that feel good. So I think that is a great question. And I would say trauma just because okay. of the time period that we're in right now. I would agree so with since that. We're talking, since would... we're talking about trauma and I think you brought some good insights to it and you know, the pandemic has been happening and people have been abusing different substances. So when do you think is the best time to intervene and possibly, you know, have an intervention with someone or maybe recommend them to a rehabilitation center? See, 
uh, I think that that's a very kind of one-on-one and person to person kind of thing, because when you look at substance use and even diagnostically, it used to be called substance abuse. Mm -hmm. Now, you know that the diagnostic statistic manual has a new term for it, which is substance use. Everything falls under substance use. And then there's dependency within that and there's severity levels. So there's mild, moderate, and severe. Someone with a mild issue, there's 11 criteria that are met that have personal, right? Recreational, occupational, and social. So there's four sectors of your life that are affected by substance use. Now, if either mild, moderate, or severe. Now, to talk about an intervention, you have to see where you're at. If you have a mild use, which is two to three of those 11 criteria. If you have two to three, so you have a mild use issue, which can be you're occasionally drinking on the weekends. You know, you might um, drove drunk once or twice. Now then you have a moderate, which is four to six of those 11 criteria. Now that's a moderate situation kind of involves you might've gotten a DWI, maybe one, you know, you might've gotten in trouble. Now, when you have six or more, it's severe. Mm. And I think with interventions, you have to have a severity level that has influenced every single part of your life, whether your job, your relationship, you've lost schooling, you have kind of in this kind of wallow of so many different things because of this substance, whether it's alcohol or marijuana. And with interventions, um, there's stages of change where you know, Cheryl, we talk about, there's people that are in stage one, they're pre-contemplating, oh, I don't have an issue. Maybe I do. Mm -hmm. Then they're in contemplation, like, yeah, a lot of my friends, maybe I do. (laughs) Then they go into the part of planning, which is planning to go to rehab, planning to go to a therapist. So I think of, to answer your question, it's when you see someone that's hitting all those sections of their life, is being depleted, it's time to say something. I mean, also too, there's variations. Mm -hmm. There's people that you see that tell you, hey girl, I don't remember what happened last night. If that starts to happen more than often, you start to black out. And what happens in your brain, you know, you you start going in autopilot is what we call it. Meaning your body's still functioning, but your mind is completely. So that's something, that's already abuse level. You've already abused alcohol to the point that you completely shut down certain logical things like your prefrontal cortex making decisions, which we know it takes what to 25 for that to, to really develop. develop. Mm -hmm. So I think, I love that question. You have to interview when you see that that person's not picking up the phone, that person's missing class, that person got warnings from their job. People are all telling you like, Hey girl, you know, you were drunk last night. I think that once you see those things depleting and that person has to want to, too, Mm -hmm. if that person doesn't want to change, they're not going to change. So that brings me to an interesting point that I think a lot of our listeners who are millennials in between the ages of 28, 35, um, when you visit the doctor, I feel like all of the things you were saying that falls under substance use in the different categories, that is definitely what the some of the questions that are asked during an annual physical for example you know like I was saying when you're when you go to the doctor those are the same questions that I was asked at least where you know how many times would you say you drink in a week is it more social is it more than two more than three more than four more than you know etc I never say (laughs) I'm never completely honest I will say that um maybe it's just you know, I don't know. I, I I always hesitate to be thoroughly, I guess, honest with uh, doctors in general. But especially for that, I feel like it's because I don't want it to seem like it's getting to that conversation. But I definitely think that that is a way to gauge if someone is 
turning their substance use into abuse. And I and I also thank you um, before I know Cheryl's chime in, chime in is that uh, thank you for saying what it is, because I was actually struggling with that term. I didn't want to say substance abuse um, because it's. It, it it doesn't necessarily mean you're abusing, you know, when, when you're drinking, when you're, you know, smoking. But I did not. I was just ignorant to the uh, PC term or the term that it should be called. So substance use. And it's so simple, but I didn't get it. So thank you for uh, giving that knowledge to, to our listeners and myself included. I want to say real quick, and I thank you for acknowledging that there are different levels that you have use, which is any type of consumption of alcohol. Then you have abuse, which I talked about. Someone continues to drink or smoke or whatever their choice when it's causing problems to them in their work, family, et cetera. Then you have dependency, which dependency is when people are overusing and their physical body will withdraw if they stop any kind of substance. So those are all in there, but substance use is the more PC term right now because it's kind of falling under all of that. So I appreciate you um, understanding that and, and getting it. So Denise, since you talked about withdrawals, I wanted to ask you, what are like the setbacks and outcomes of going just straight cold turkey? Well, I wouldn't recommend going cold turkey. It all depends on the substance that you are using. When it comes to opioids and heroin, you have a, a very difficult time if you are a user that uses consumption daily. You can have seizures, you can even die if it's a long-term consumption. So I think a setback is depending on what type of drug that you're using, specifically heroin, um, opioids, they're very dangerous to completely come off. That's why they have like methadone clinics and they have um, different types of substances that kind of, you know, fill in for that feeling and for that type. So I think like stuff like um, methadone is one of the things that they use for heroin. And they also have um, noxicil. Uh, and it's just a very difficult drug to kind of overcome on your own. As far as marijuana and alcohol, that could be alcohol could be more dangerous as well. So I would suggest if you have a dependency, which those are the, the issues that I expected that you have shivers when you don't have the substance, when you have fevers, you have um, cold, cold sweat. Those are signs that you are dependent on a substance. And I would not suggest withdrawing without seeking help and seeking professional help. And as far as marijuana, um, cold turkey, I know people that have stopped completely and it's been, um, it was hard, but it, I, I didn't see any side effects of it. So I think to answer your question, it depends on what substance you're using. I would say with heroin opioids, because it's a, uh, an opioid and it's very, very dangerous to kind of completely come off of it on, on your own. You would definitely need a substance or, or clinical help to really combat that. And for our listeners, uh, Denise, who may not know what going cold turkey or the extent of what going cold turkey means can you share what that might look like uh what that means is just one day you just decide after let's say many months or many years of uses that you just completely stop you say i do not want to use this substance anymore i don't want this in my body at all and you completely stop and stopping from a substance like and i use opioids because there's a big um epidemic right now, specifically in New Jersey, of the use of semi-synthetic. Semi-synthetic opioids are opioids that are mixed with different types of chemicals. And then you have opioids that are, are straight, pretty much raw, which are pure. 
And those are the ones that are on the street. So what I want to say with that is you cannot stop that type of drug without getting any help. And I would not suggest that. I don't know if anybody's had surgery. I've had surgery before and I've been given semi-synthetic um, um, type of opioids, which are like um, oxycodone, you know, those types. And those can become addictive. I know people that started using painkillers and then those are the pain relievers and they start using chemicals out in the street like phenylalanine and mm -hmm. going to dope and heroin so you imagine myself having surgery and having to take something like that and after a couple of days I already felt like I still needed it and that's right. something prescribed so that's right. one of the biggest things that people talk about is prescription and with withdrawal I would say always try to seek um, help I mean there's a lot of different resources you have um, SAMHSA which is the substance uh, a substance alliance of mental health association. If you ever need any help, you can reach out to that. And I'll give it some more of those. And you can actually say, Hey, listen, I'm looking to quit using this type of drug and actually get yourself in clinic. I would say like stopping if it's something like maybe nicotine or alcohol, and it's something that you don't consume daily, then it could be easier. But if that's something that you are consuming on a constant, mm -hmm. your body's going to show. Denise, I thought it was great that you brought up the opioid epidemic that's happening in New Jersey. And I think it's the perfect segue because I currently work for a hospital in New Jersey and I'm constantly getting trainings about this whole opioid epidemic. So I personally think that it differs um, from the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. And I wanted you to speak on that. And can you just kind of chime in on how you see the differences of how professionals handle the crack epidemic versus the opioid epidemic? Uh, I, I actually wrote a paper a couple of years ago because um, I know that where you work at is one of the places that they started something called the Alto Act. And the Alto Bill is called the Alternative of Opioid Use. Now in Patterson, New Jersey, alongside with Cory Booker, and I think Senator Rob Menendez, they, they spent over $30 million looking for alternate of pain, specifically when people come into the emergency room. The first thing that happens in emergency rooms are usually car accidents or an off, uh, unexpected accidents. Mm -hmm. So now they're using alternatives other than people who have cancer or different types of immunodeficiencies that might need these type of opioids for pain reasoning, right? So I thought that was interesting that because of a, a situation where there was like, I think it was, it was crazy. It was like 40 to 50% of people were using opioids that they actually had a grant for $30 million to do research to say, hey, listen, let's look at different alternatives like pressure points, like um, vitamins, just natural things, $30 million that they focus on opioids. About Versus time. We talk about the, the, the crack, I'm sorry. No, sorry. Go ahead. Keep going. No, it, no it's right. It versus the, the, the crack epidemic and that those times, which you're talking about the 70s and 80s, that when Richard Nixon came into office, he did, you know, the, the, the Drug Enforcement Act and the war on drugs. And what happened in 1970s, they classified and scheduled drugs as a schedule. Marijuana was the number one scheduled drug. Right. And then you have cocaine that wasn't in schedule one, schedule two or three. So then you start to look at what things are being put into place, like the Drug Enforcement Association, which is the DEA, they look at scheduling, medical professionals look at scheduling, and legalities look at scheduling of drugs to classify offenders and felons under these schedules and restrictions. So when you talk about the war on drugs, you're talking about a situation where there was a lot of under, underlining of discrimination, a lot of substitute words and usage to kind of um, 
like identify they're targeting to black people. I think there was one of the campaign aligned um, politicians that were along Nixon that years later said that the, dro- the, the war on drugs was code for the war on people of color, specifically black people. So I think that the two differentiates are that we are in a more kind of equity kind of side of things now that people are, you know, looking at drugs and seeing the non-stigma of rehabilitation, the non-stigma of using methadone or using different types of medicines to help people. And then the the discriminatory factor of it. Then we go back to that. It was kind of a situation in 1970 where the 70s and 80s that we're coming off of the 60s and early 70s where a lot of groups like the Black Panthers, you have Angela Davis, you have Fred Hampton. And we know that they were combating the right and, and extremist Black nationalism to kind of take take away like what they did in, in, in California with Reagan. So you have all these kinds of factors that people are starting to see um, pe- black people kind of say, listen, I'm tired of this. I don't want this. So what happens? They start using policies and drugs within the administration to kind of factor in conversations around it. Then you have 1980s where they say, don't say no to drugs. What, what, is, what is that? Say no to what? What was no? What, you know, people need to have conversations of what addiction is, even though it's hard. And I have a son and you know, you're a mother too. Uh, it's hard to have these conversations, but people need to be aware of it. So I think that things are handled differently because there are more resources, there's more, there's more non-stigma, and then there's less focus on trying to bring a, a group of people down, which what I felt was happening then. And I felt like that was a lot. I mean, people were getting immense amount of, of years mm-hmm. because of the Draco laws in the 80s. I mean, there's people still incarcerated to this day yeah. because of that the was a big part of, of our episode had. as well. That was a big part of our episode as well as the decriminalization of, you know, the use of what was illegal, what's now legal, you know, to try and uh, make it right or, you know, make it fit, make it make sense. If If it's no longer illegal, then why should those same people be held, you know, be punished for that now switching back a little bit doubling back down on uh substance use and resources on how to be a healthier you what would you say what's your thoughts on substance uh, hotlines or support groups actually being confidential now you know i'm a tv buff okay and i know tv doesn't necessarily translate to (laughs) real life but you know i'm watching the breaking bads i'm watching the snowfalls i'm watching all of those shows and and, and you said what you said narcos Those yes, shows focus on drugs in general, um, or again, just substances, alcohol included. I've seen a lot of shows where it's, um, you know, uh, someone is just a, a functional drunk or a functional alcoholic. But I would say, though, with that is those groups that you go Alcohol Anonymous and things like that do you would you really think that people can trust in those groups or yeah what would what do you what do you have to say about those those resources I mean I I do think there is a trust level because everyone specifically when you talk about like AA Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous a lot of those a lot of people that do attend these things some of them are drug uh, drug court mandated which they kind of have to attend these meetings to kind of fit a requirement 
of the program they're in to be in parole and probation. So you have those set of people. Then you have people who are really needing that camaraderie and really needing that venting. And I think you can trust those spaces. Um, I know that there's a lot of alternative different groups like called Smart Recovery, which has like a more um, emotional, um, it's called um, Robert, I'm sorry, Albert Ellis. He is a, a theorist that came up with something called emotional, rational therapy, which is emotive, rational therapy. And what I like about those type of groups is that when you look at these other groups where you talk about if you can trust people, a lot of times you have to introduce yourself like you're an addict all the time. You have to say, hi, my name is, you know, Denise and I am an alcoholic. Hi, my name is. And I think with smart recovery, they use terminology different. They use words to replace those negative, even though that is a part of who you are, who you were, but that doesn't make you all that you are. Mm -hmm. And I think with certain groups, you can trust people in there, but you got to be careful because you have groups of people that are going for and betterment and those people that are going to kind of fill a requirement for not 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 to get not to go back to jail not to get locked up so you got to kind of really understand what you're getting yourself into and go for you Mm -hmm. so I would say it's a blurred line you can't trust but you got to be careful who's in there for themselves or to fit a requirement usually for drug core or to get their children back as well a lot of times parents have to go that suffered from substance use have to go to these certain groups to be able to get their children back from somewhere like the Department of Family and Child right. Services. And they have to have these requirements of therapy as well. So I think just keep your eye open for what you want. I mean, substance use is a is a very difficult thing. Now, still on the subject of that trust level, I want to talk about sponsorship because I'm to understand, I don't, I'm not familiar with the entire process, um, but I, again, TV buff, I watch All American, um, not um, good trouble on free form things like that and that that's a big that's a huge storyline in a lot of those shows um and so with that though it's sponsorship when you get a sponsor someone who's supposed to keep you you know I guess off the ledge when you're on the ledge to, to get you off the ledge but there's also been in those same storylines um cases where the, the sponsor may not pick up or they're not available or they cannot be to your ever beck and call so with that because, you know, I, I just question because of that, the whole idea of that, because if someone is the only thing stopping you from going back to the bottle or going back to that next hit, is it really is it doing more? Is it then doing more go- harm than good? Should we get rid of sponsors altogether? Should it be more focused on programs? I just want to get your thoughts. I love that question because that's something that I struggle with to question because I do lead groups. So I do groups with different people who are substance users and have mental health. And we do do the principal steps of AA. And some of them have sponsors and some of them don't. And I do think that in the scope of the way that everything is evolving, people need to take a little bit more accountability because when we look at someone who's, um, who has suffered from use, they have a codependency codependency to every single thing to their sponsor to their therapist to whoever's going to listen to them if they're not fully healed now i'll give you an example i have a client who um has a lot of different variations of things going on a little bit of use and it's like a codependency if i don't speak to this person or get back to them they feel like everything is kind of out of control and i do think with substance use people have to take a little bit more responsibility when they're strong enough when they're strong enough what i say with that sponsorship is okay but it's like a peer help, like your friend and your buddy who's kind of gone through that. But you have to do the work. You have to make sure to know what triggers you. You know, what's your stressors? What you shouldn't, what places and people not to be around. When you change your whole life 
you have to change everything around you. And sometimes it's very hard to do that if you're in a very poor social location. Imagine you trying to get off drugs and crossing the street and at the White Castle in Patterson and someone there trying to sell you drugs. Let's just give that example. How do you change that when you don't have support financially, when you don't, you're a felon and you don't have those resources like other people have? So I think that's a great question. I do think that they're doing something called, it, it, they try to change the name of it. It's kind of like a peer support now. They don't call it sponsor because even the word sponsor sounds like that person's giving you something for you to prove yourself to them. Like when you have a sponsorship in a podcast, right? You have, it's an alignment, but that person's believing in you, right? right? And giving you a, an incentive right. to really see if it's going to work out. I think it's something called that they're using is like peer support. And um, I think that might be better kind of using the words and the way that we change things. But I do think that it can be harmful if you don't know who you are. You don't know if you're an enabler or a codependent and you haven't handled those type of personality traits. And I say this to say, because I understand it very, very well. I, I work with people. I've myself have seen it within my family. And I have been through things myself that I've noticed about my personality that I can't put myself in certain predicaments, just in general. And you have to kind of know that about yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that one thing that I want to do more with group is kind of teach people the core of who they were before all of this. And that's very that's hard to important. find in the mess of trauma, in the yes. mess of being broke, in the mess. It's hard. Yes. And I think that I talk about that, like how was certain people able ah. to get over things? You know what I mean? It's hard for some, you know, it's not easy. And I know Ari brought up uh, a couple examples of good shows to watch, um, like Good Trouble. And I personally wanted to ask you, because you talked about urban areas and resources, where is there any like financial grant um, for these resources for people that aren't mandated to go to seek help? So right now there's um, there's a website called and I have it here, www.addicted.org. So addicted.org gives you youth statistics and anything that's Medicaid or anything, if you don't have any job or anything, you can look up any type of program that could be compliant as far as the rehabilitation. Now, as far as agency programs, there's so many of them everywhere. So these are some of the ones that we talk about. We talk about drug court. Drug court is a way that if you're gonna, you have to take a, a lesser type of, of, of crime and what happens is with drug court is that they say, okay, you've sold marijuana, you've sold whatever substance, you're going to have to go to this program, learn about it, get you keep yourself clean. And then if you do these meetings and you kind of fix yourself, then you, you don't have to go back to jail. So there's a lot of these programs, but those programs are not only for people who are mandated to kind of fit this requirement not to go back into incarceration. There, there's so many different programs that people don't know about. And if you don't have any money. All you have to do is look up addicted.org and they'll give you everything. There's directory state by state, there's services, there's payment options, even grants within it. If you don't have Medicaid, that you you do something. Something else people don't know too. And I think that when, especially when you go through like something like a, a driving while intoxicated or driving under the influence, once you're going through that, they send you to a, a center and that center gives you all these different types of resources as well. You can look up anything in your state. And I think that, because it's not in people's faces and we're not seeing it, they're not aware of it. So I would say go to addicted.org. They have so many different things that you can look for. I'm just so happy that we're talking about 
what we can do to be better. So I, as people, if you are facing this, uh, these issues and these hurdles, so definitely want to continue on the conversation of treatment and how to um, overcome. So with that, I have some some statistics that I want to bring up for the simple fact that it doesn't substance use turn into substance substance abuse doesn't really affect you it affects your loved ones it affects your siblings your spouse your family your children um and even to the point of denise when you mentioned earlier opioid so i'll start with that first um just like how you said with um the it's painkillers it's that addiction so even the center for disease control and prevention cdc they report and this is an older report so things are probably um have heightened since then but it reports that a number of babies born with opioid withdrawal syndrome that's i.e mothers who have abused painkillers or heroin while pregnant at the time between 2000 and 2012 it had quadrupled over the past 15 years so it's five it has a 500 percent increase and then another statistic ladies before i would like for you to chime in obviously is that Back to what you also mentioned earlier, uh, Denise, was Sam Hissa, that's how I'm pronouncing it, uh, that reports that children of alcoholics um, are as much as four times more likely to become alcoholics themselves. And so this is comparing them to children who live in sober families. Like to bring it all out, let's 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 lighten up the 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 little sober party here right now. Um <laughs> <laughs> to talk about that it's not all bad. There has been great succession and 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 great uh statistics on how people who have dealt with this are really getting invested to better themselves and what you are up against. So let's just definitely be transparent with this. But these are some statistics that I've pulled together about talking about what's also reality, which is relapsing potentially in that trying to succeed in that. So according to the national Institute on drug abuse, addiction may have may actually have slightly lower relapse rates than hypertension that a lot of also uh, people of color deal with um, just because of the things we eat and our diet, uh, et cetera. But with that, if you, they recommend that, and I want to get your opinion on this, um, Denise, that treatment, anything fewer than 90 days, you are more than likely to relapse. Um, the old stigma of 28 days or 30 days for um, that is kind of gone away, but definitely 90 days um, sh- is like the minimum you should do. I kind of just want to uh, see if you agree with that. If you think that the longer the better, um, what to do if you do relapse. Um, just to close it out, Denise, what, what would you say for those questions? I would say if when it comes to succession rate, there are people that are successful in treatment. You know, there are people that have been able to manage their stress, get healthy relationships and really bond themselves and who they really were. You know what I mean? Then you have situations where you talk about when people relapse that you can't, if you fall down, you got to pick yourself back up again. You have to go back into therapy. You have to understand what happened. What was your stressors and really figure out what's your long-term decision? Because some people that don't finish what 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 their 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 choice of substance they could their life can end and they're in jail and there's people that last so many years doing that and I ask myself that question when I look at my clients I say what is the difference between me and them 
Why were they, uh, they're not able to, some of them are not able to kick a habit. And I did, I stopped drinking. I stopped drinking going on seven years. And, and I know how it is to be that person. And I changed, I changed. And, and I changed because I got, I found out to my core and I took accountability of who I was and who I wanted to be. You know, my life was very different seven years ago. What it was going to be until it is now. But I made the decision to say, hey, you know what? I was always this great, passionate, loving, confident person. And why can I still be that person? And I think that's what I try to instill in my clients. You mess up. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. You have to kind of understand that that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why I do so much because I feel like I wasted so many years being average and I'm not going to be that person wow. anymore. And I see my clients and I'm like, it could, that could have been me. Mm-hmm. And it's not. It's so not. what is the difference? I've had great support. I have, I've been, I've been fortunate to have degrees. I've been fortunate to have education. I've been fortunate to want to pursue that change. Pursue. And I think it starts with wanting to. Mm-hmm. Nobody could force you. No, it can't. Nobody. Um, Denise, I appreciate you so much for coming yes. on our show. I mean, you're a friend to the show. Always you, me and Ari <laughs> always talk about you. We call you the encyclopedia. We call you the plug. Yes. You got resources for days. Um, not even gonna lie, Cheryl's was like Denise can Denise would be a great guest. You do a lot. Yes, I love you, girls. It's so, not just abuse work, but you do a lot with the podcast. Mm-hmm. And you're a proud Afro Latina. You do a lot with that community. So shout out your plugs. What can we look forward to in the future? Yes. So, um, you know, I'm glad I was able to be here and share that with you guys. Um, you know, something I don't share a lot, but it's, it's the reality of it. And I'm, I'm very okay with it. And I love you girls. Thank you for having me. I appreciate your show. I love what you guys do. And you guys could just look forward to me doing a lot of work with technology and advocacy and social work, and also continue my podcasters, New Jersey incubator um, group, which is going on two years, March 26th. I have 440 members kind of gone really really crazy i love it and then also i launched my podcast network podcast is unlimited which i launched in the summer of 2020 which and we i'm cultivating were that because i'm very busy yeah. so i'm trying to juggle everything but i will say one thing that i'm super proud of is that um we actually have a summit it's called pod work launching a podcast network so we want more people to launch podcast network we want more people to know what it's about is on May 22nd. I'm super excited. It's from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. I have people like Podchaser. I have people like Podfun. I have someone um, super important that's coming on that's going to be talking. I have um, BMI who's coming through to talk about copyright. I have a lot of different wow. types of just things that people need to know because I had to figure out a lot of things along with Anne. And shout out to Anne. You know, I couldn't do it without hey, She's Anne. the president of Podcasters Unlimited. And, you know, we started this together. And also Stephen, who advised us. So I'm super excited for everything that I got going. But I, I couldn't do that without believing in myself and having support. And I say to people that suffer from addiction or, or use, you know who you are. Just make sure to know what your history is. Have you healthy relationships. And really look to yourself because you can do it. Denise, you also have to shout out your podcast, Podcipher, which me and Ari have been guests on. And I've seen you guys, you guys have a new season and you're dropping episodes. 
Yes. So that I know I'm just going off about a whole bunch of things, but yes, Pod Cypher is on season two. I'm super excited. You guys were on season one. And I hope ah, to have you on season two ah, again. Uh, we've been talking about ah. things from mental health <laughs> and within the pandemic, just different topics about the inauguration, things that have been happening with the new administration, policy change, and also pop culture. So thank you for, for reminding me, Pod Cypher. And we also have Podcasters Unlimited, which is a how-to. And we have that once a month, which is based on our Podcasters New Jersey meetup that we do virtually. So you, as you can see, Denise is the Jane of all trades, um, but she tells her story and she tells it uh, authentically. And we just wanted our listeners to understand that um, it can be anyone. And and Denise is the the uh, the. What is it? The ox? What what is it? The what? What's that saying? I can't even think of it right now. But she's the one. She, huh? She's the phoenix. No, she's the rising phoenix. She's 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 she has risen to the occasion each and every time, and that is every one of our listeners here. So thank you, Shanice. I said thank you. Thank you, Denise, for I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but thank you, Denise, for um, appearing on the episode. And you are always a friend of the show. And uh, yeah, and we will talk with you soon. So I just want to personally thank Denise for coming and shedding a light on substance abuse and all within trauma within the pandemic. Um, Shout out to Governor Murphy for actually legalizing marijuana. Mm -hmm. I know, I know Ari and me, we definitely want to see the economic justice, the racial justice. And that goes for, you know, black people and people of color being at the forefront of having ownership, of having license. Um, so that they can own dispensary. Of course, we talked, we kind of touched on the black market versus the dispensaries, but um, we want to see more of, we want to see more of um, the taxes and what the taxes are going towards, whether that be for railroads, whether that be for drug prevention programs, um, Governor Murphy, he hasn't really talked about that yet. Mm-hmm. And of course, we want all the homies to be free from petty <laughs> drug crimes, you know, the expungement of records. So Ari, I want to ask you, do you have any recommendations when it comes to getting more information about marijuana laws within New Jersey or with marijuana laws within the United States of, ex- of decriminalizing marijuana? I definitely think that when it comes to aiding uh, the decriminalization of anything that goes to people of color, definitely you can check, continue to follow the Black Lives Matter movement um, and their uh, nonprofit org and their movement um, that's happening and does uh, various changes in legislation monthly, weekly, daily. Um, I, I think it, I can't stress it enough that. Uh, we think that we know only when it's nationally recognized and a lot more goes on uh, beyond those curtains when you actually go to the sites and you look for yourself. So I do recommend those things uh, that that uh, 
website as a recommendation but I definitely agree that when we are talking about legalizing recreational use of marijuana when we're talking about uh, getting rid of the stigma when we're talking about substance use that turns into substance abuse it happens in a matter of seconds it happens in a matter of days of consistent use of these um, substances and like we said we have fallen victim to it not of the abuse part but more so that we drink we smoke we engage and though and it's a fine line between you know using it for uh recreation and then using it for a crutch or a need and it's nothing wrong with it but it only becomes something wrong with it when you don't do something about it and you see yourself on a decline and a demise so we definitely recommend that you do something about it so that you can be the best boss millennial boss um that you can be and live in your most holistic way and reach the ultimate uh optimal climax of succession so we definitely thank you for tuning in to another week of the Millennial Her podcast, Baked or Behind Bars. Be sure to subscribe to, <laughs> I know, <laughs> make sure you subscribe <laughs> to our channel, our YouTube channel. Um, follow us on social media. Make sure you check out our website, our links in our bio on social media, and continue to support us via Patreon, via Cash App. Our uh, support has been uh, cursing throughout our episode. And share with your friends. And make sure that you come back for another episode. See y'all. See ya.